Welcome to today's edition of Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today we have a very special guest indeed. Professor Ian Fraser is one of Australia's most celebrated medical research scientists. He's CEO and Director of Research at the Brisbane Translational Research Institute, which we'll talk a little bit later about in the program. He's received numerous national and international awards for his work in developing technology that has enabled a vaccine to help prevent cervical cancer. In May 2011, Professor Fraser was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of London. This achievement elevates him to the same status as world-renowned scientists such as Stephen Hawking, Sir Isaac Newton. In 2012, Professor Fraser was appointed a Companion of the Order of Australia in the Queen's Birthday Honours. Professor Fraser's achievements are not the result of overnight success, as you will hear in this interview, but rather they're the result of a lifelong commitment to medical research. Professor Fraser has led what I best term a big life, a full life and a dedicated life as a medical scientist and a researcher. And he's joining us today on Navigating the Cancer Maze. So welcome to the program, Professor Ian Fraser. Um, Ian, um, when I was young, I was inspired by a TV scientist, Professor Julia Sumner-Miller. He had a profound influence on my life. That question, why is it so, has never left me. Uh, You were raised in Edinburgh in Scotland. What inspired or who inspired you to pursue medicine during your early days at school? Grace, I was inspired, first of all, to be the scientist, perhaps before the doctor. And I was inspired by a couple of uh, very uh, clever science teachers at my school in Edinburgh and in Aberdeen who taught me that uh, there was a lot to be gained by experimental approach to finding out about things. They just allowed you to have the freedom to study what you wanted to do, to try things out. I chose to do medicine because I was inspired by a guy that I met when I was in Germany. I was visiting there as part of a student exchange program, if you like, and he was the father of the girlfriend of the guy that I was staying with in Germany he said look when you're thinking about things that are important think about things that will really benefit humankind Uh, and I was thinking about physics is what I was going to study at that point Mm -hmm. but he changed my mind to thinking about how the body defends itself against infection because that was what his interest was and that's an interest that stuck with me ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, well, your parents, were, I believe, were also um, in medicine, is that correct? Yeah, my father was a doctor. Uh, he was a laboratory scientist, again, more than perhaps a practising doctor. Uh, he was very interested in the body chemistry, and uh, he certainly uh, gave me the opportunity to see how real research was done by taking me into his work when I was at an age where that actually had an impact. Uh, and that taught me... A lot of things. It taught me, first of all, that there was a lot to be said for doing science which had clinical relevance, but also that it showed me that uh, real science was tough, unlike the stuff at school, that it didn't always work. <laughs> yeah. So after graduation, you chose to emigrate to Melbourne in Australia with your young family then, I believe. So you must have had a lot of um, academic and research opportunities in the UK. What attracted you to come to Australia? I came first to Australia as an undergraduate student, just as a working visit holiday in 1974. And uh, at that time I wanted to come to what was arguably the best place to study immunology in the world, the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. All the papers I had read as an undergraduate, half of them had come from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. And names like Mitchell, 
Miller, Nossel, Metcalf, mm-hmm. uh, Parrish, they all figured very much in the, my thinking at that time. So I wanted to see where all this work had come from. So I came out and spent three months there. I went back and finished my studies, finished my training as a renal physician, decided that I needed to then get into research, which is what I was wanting to do. And I was just about to go to Cambridge in the UK uh, to do a PhD with uh, John with Alan Munro when I got a telegram, which had, no, nobody gets telegrams anymore, but in those days I got <laughs> a telegram. And the telegram had been from the guy that had mentored me while I was out in 1974 in Melbourne. And it basically said, where the bloody hell are you? I, he was expecting me to come back. He'd maybe not made that clear to me, but it was obviously clear to him. And so we had to make a quick decision at Cambridge, Melbourne, and I discussed it with my wife, and we thought a couple of years in Melbourne sounded like a really good idea, back to the Hall Institute where the good immunology was being done. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand early in your career, too, you became interested in HIV. Um, can you talk about that interest and the influence that it had on shaping um, your career, particularly your research career? When I was first in Melbourne, I studied uh, how the body tried to fight off a virus called hepatitis B virus, which is responsible for chronic liver disease, because that was what my mentor's interest was. To study that, I had to work with a group of men who had sex with men, because that was where chronic hepatitis B infection was common. Mm. And this was back in 1981, before HIV AIDS, but it was obvious in this group of men that I was studying that some of them had something very far wrong with their immune system. And shortly after I started that study, we had a visit from a scientist from Boston who came and talked about this problem in the United States that was becoming obvious in men who had sex with men, that there was a group of them who were acquiring really unusual infections as a consequence of something wrong with their immune system. So I realised that the problem that they were seeing in the United States was also in Melbourne. And I then focused on that for a bit of my research and looked at what the nature of the problem was. We didn't know it was a viral infection then, although it was pretty obvious it was something that was infectious. It was very hard to prove. And then when Bob Gallo came up with the idea that uh, it was caused by, first of all, HTLV-1 virus and then subsequently HTLV-3 virus, we were able to convince him that it wasn't HTLV-1 because the serology didn't match in in Melbourne. And then when we sent in the samples from our Melbourne study, there was a one-to-one match between the problem that we were seeing in Melbourne and a positive test for the HTLV-3 virus. So that at that point, uh, it was clear that what he was describing in the States was also what was going on in Brisbane and Mm. Melbourne Mm -hmm. and Sydney at that time. So that got me interested in why the body couldn't fight this virus, and it also eventually led on to the work on papillomavirus. Right. Um, Speaking of that, I believe you've been inspired by the early work of a German virologist, Harold Zuhausen. I've read some of his information um, over the years. Um, he had made the connection between HPV and cervical cancer in the early 70s, but it, I believe it didn't really go um, in the direction that uh, he was hoping to. And, um, you know, perhaps uh, he was deemed a little radical. So when you pursued that, um, you know, how much did his research influence you along that pathway? When I was, when I'd been in Melbourne for a couple of years and was working on liver disease, I visited a colleague, Hans Harald Meyers from Wuschenfeld at the the German Cancer Research Institute uh, to talk about the liver disease. And he introduced me to Harold Serhausen, who also worked in the German Cancer Research Institute at that time. And Harold told me about his interest in papillomavirus 
and its connection in his mind with cervical cancer. That inspired me to go back to look in our group of men who had sex with men and one of the things that we recognised was that they were having great difficulty in getting rid of genital warts which were also caused by papillomavirus different papillomaviruses but the same family of virus Mm -hmm. but more interestingly what we found is that they were also getting a cancer, anal cancer which had not been thought to be caused by a virus infection but we looked and found that the same virus that Harold Sarhausen had found in the cervical cancers we were finding in the in the men with anal cancer and we realised that this was another cancer that was being caused by the same virus so that that really started my interest in the papillomavirus story and uh, that chance meeting with Harold Zerhausen in Germany in 1983 was what started us off down that pathway. Fantastic. Um, you had some significant co-workers I believe in your uh, lifetime um, would you like to just tell us a little bit about them and how they influenced your research outcomes? Well, obviously, for the papillomavirus story, the person that has to get mentioned is my late colleague, Jan Zhu. Uh, when I was uh, interested in papillomavirus, first of all, my interest is in getting a means of curing papillomavirus infection. And for the first couple of years I worked in papillomavirus, that was really the focus of the work. I was interested in how the body could fight off this virus. And I went to Cambridge on sabbatical, uh, and there I met Jan Su, who was also on sabbatical in Cambridge. He was in the neighbouring lab. I was in Margaret Stanley's lab doing immunology of papillomavirus. He was in Lionel Crawford's lab next door studying the virology of papillomavirus. And we shared this common interest in papillomavirus. So we talked a lot about that. And we wanted to make a papillomavirus. The whole point of the exercise was to try and study more about how the virus worked and interacted with the body, but we couldn't grow the virus in the lab, so we decided we'd build one. And I managed to lure Jan to come back to Brisbane, along with his wife, and then subsequently with his son, to work in Brisbane with me. And that interaction led to the technology which eventually became the papillomavirus vaccine, but was also a very fruitful collaboration over many years looking at other aspects of papillomavirus. Look, there have been lots of scientists that have worked with me, and another collaborator who was very useful uh, collaborator and helped very much develop the ideas about how you could might be treat papillomavirus was uh, Professor Robert Tyndall, who worked as a postdoc in my lab and a research fellow in my lab when I first got going in Brisbane. He, stud- he knew all about how to study the immunology of virus infections, and he and I together worked on how we could try and plan out our attack on curing papillomavirus infection. And subsequently, of course, I have had a whole number of people who have worked with me over the years. Mm. I'm interested to know, why couldn't you make it in the laboratory? Why, why didn't that work? Well, we eventually did make a papillomavirus in the laboratory, but we can't grow papillomavirus in the laboratory because it, uh, most viruses you can grow very easily in cell culture. You put the virus into the cells, mm. the cells then make lots more virus, and you put in one virus, you get a million viruses out. Papillomavirus doesn't do that. It will grow very happily in skin, but if you put skin cells into culture and put the virus in, it just disappears. And even if you put a bit of skin into culture and put the virus in there, if you get one virus out for every one you put in, you think you're doing rather well. So that uh, just as a virus which is adapted to growing only effectively in skin on your body, and despite a lot of effort by a lot of people subsequently, 
I don't think anybody could claim that they've actually managed to grow the virus effectively in the lab. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do was to build a virus, you know, using, uh, if you like, genetic engineering technology to assemble infectious virus in the lab. So we could study how the virus got into cells, how the body interacted with infected cells, and learn a bit more than we could do with the standard approaches that were available when you could only work in people. Great. I suppose this is in your new book, and I will mention your new book. It, uh, well, it's not your book. You didn't write it. It's been um, written by Madonna King, Ian Fraser, the man who saved a million lives. Wow, what a title. Uh, I guess a lot of this information is actually recorded in your book. Is that correct? Yeah, much of the story of how the vaccine came about and the collaborations that produced it are recorded in the book. Uh, Madonna King went out and interviewed many of the relevant people and chatted with them about how they saw the story so that you get the whole story in there. Wonderful. It's an amazing story. We're going to take a break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze and we'll be back shortly with Professor Ian Fraser, our very special guest today. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I'm speaking with Professor Ian Fraser, um, who is a creator of the amazing cervical cancer vaccine. And we're going to be talking more about that specifically in this segment. So um, what can you tell us about the early experimentation with HPV? Can you describe the virus more? You've just told us a little bit before the break about um, how it replicates and the steps that actually led to understanding it, where it became possible and plausible to create a vaccine. Right, Grace, that's quite a challenging question. It is. <laughs> we, we have to start with a problem, and the problem was that uh, until about 1980, the reality was that we didn't know very much about papillomaviruses at all. They couldn't be grown in the lab, as I've said, it was thought that perhaps there was one human papillomavirus and that that one human papillomavirus was responsible for skin warts wherever they occurred in the body. Uh, we knew that there were animal papillomaviruses. We even knew that some of the animal papillomaviruses could cause cancer in animals, particularly in rabbits. But what was not known was that there were a whole raft of different papillomaviruses and that each of them were biologically different. Some of them caused one disease, some of them caused another. What made the whole thing possible was, in fact, the molecular biology revolution that occurred in the 1970s, because as the virus couldn't be grown in the lab, standard virus virology technology couldn't be used. For example, nobody could do serology, nobody could test for antibodies in the blood to the virus mm -hmm. because you couldn't grow the virus, and so you couldn't work out that there were lots of viruses. But when it became possible to actually clone the genetic information of the virus, it became possible to work out a lot more. The virus as a, fam as a family, they only grow in skin cells. Uh, mostly they produce either no disease at all, very many of the papillomaviruses, you never even know that you've got them, mm. or they produce warty lumps, which are benign tumours. But a few of these viruses have the ability, if they persist in the body, to convert normal skin cells into cancer skin cells and then a cancer can arise. That's a slow process. Most of us get rid of the virus without any problem at all. We get infected with the virus, and after a period of time, the body clears it. It's quite a long period of time. It can be as long as several years, mm. unlike flu virus, for example, where you get it and you're rid of it in a few weeks. Uh, the papillomavirus hangs around. But most people clear it, and most people don't even know they've had them. And that's true for both the ones which infect normal skin and the ones which infect only genital skin. The genital skin ones are the interesting ones because they're the ones that promote cancer. 
so that we have this dilemma that because you can't study the virus because the standard techniques don't work, we really didn't know very much about the, the, the viruses and what they did until we could actually map out genetically whether the virus was in the skin or not. Now we have easy tests to do that. We can test whether a virus is there. We can even test what sort of papillomavirus from the 200 types we know about is actually there. What we've learned is that there are about 10 strains of papillomavirus which can infect the genital tract. Mm -hmm. And two of them produce warts, and they never turn into cancers. The other eight produce a risk of cervical cancer if they persist. And two out of those are particularly bad news because they very commonly persist and very commonly go on to cause a cancer. But even then, only 2% of those infections will persist and go on to a cancer. Mm-hmm. So if we can just keep our discussion here to uh, the cervical cancer at this stage, uh, could you share with our listeners the statistics regarding the incidence of cervical cancer around the world? Um, and what are the outcomes for these women uh, prior to your vaccine? Well, approximately 270,000 women die of cervical cancer worldwide every year. Mm, That's significant. It's mostly in the developing world. It's a disease of the developing world, primarily because it's a cancer which we can prevent in the developed world through screening through the pap smear program. Mm. Uh, it's It's one of the few cancers that occur in women under the age of 50. Breast cancer and cervical cancer are the two cancers which globally kill lots of women, and they're both cancers that occur in women under 50. Uh, cervical cancer is a nasty cancer because you don't know you've got it until it's really quite late in the course of the disease. By the time you have symptoms, the disease is almost always incurable. And uh, while we try to cure it even at that stage, realistically, most of the time we can't. And that's why the death rate from cervical cancer is so high globally. If you screen for cervical cancer with the pap smear program, you catch it before it is in even a cancer or maybe in the very early stages of cancer, then it's an entirely curable disease. Surgery usually cures it, and if surgery doesn't, then radiotherapy probably will. Mm-hmm. With the introduction of the vaccine, uh, what are we going to see over the next decades? Well, we already are seeing in Australia with the introduction of the vaccine some seven years ago that the, virus is disappe- the viruses are disappearing. Genital warts, which used to be a very, the commonest sexually transmitted infection in Australia, are prevented by the vaccine because the vaccine has the two virus types that prevent genital warts. Genital warts in women under the age of 25 and in men under the age of 25 have virtually disappeared in Australia. The other thing that we've seen in Australia is that the virus in pap smears, when a pap smear is taken, you can actually look to see if papillomavirus is there. And the viruses in the pap smears have changed now so that the types which are commonly responsible for cervical cancer, type 16 and 18, have virtually disappeared from pap smears in women under the age of 25. So the vaccine is doing exactly what we'd predict would happen. The one disease that it's responsible for that occurs quickly after infection has virtually vanished and the virus infections that would go on to produce cancer have virtually vanished. If you map this globally, and we could, and if we could vaccinate all women, you would anticipate that within 20 to 30 years, cervical cancer would disappear. How exciting. You must feel amazing with this discovery. <laughs> well, it's been a global effort, yeah. and a lot of people have been involved, but the most important thing is getting the vaccine out there where it needs to be used. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's one thing I'd like to ask you next, the Gardasil and the Severix, is that the way? Severix. Um, the cost, the availability around the world, the show goes out around the world. Um, it's based in, in the US. So if you could uh, pay attention to that, and when should the vaccine be given? And vaccinating boys, could you cover that area? Okay. <laughs> Gardasil and Cervix are both aimed at preventing cervical cancer, and they both protect against HPV-16 and HPV-18, the two virus types which are most commonly responsible for cervical cancer, about 70% of cervical cancer due to those two viruses. So that, And they're both equally effective in terms of their ability to prevent these infections. The vaccines are quite expensive because 15 years of development for the vaccines have to be paid for. About $2 billion was spent in developing these vaccines, proving that they worked through clinical trials and that money of course the companies want to get back Uh, but the vaccines are available in the developing world at much lower prices than they are in the developed world if you like we are paying in the developed world for the cost of the development work for the Mm -hmm. vaccines the countries in the developing world are merely paying for the cost of manufacture of the vaccines which is much less than the total development cost as well so that the vaccine programs have been instigated by both companies in the developing world. More recently, uh, Bill, the, there's been a negotiation to get a price of $5 for the vaccine in the developing world, and Bill Gates has agreed to pay the $5 for a number of countries as a starting process to get vaccine programs Wonderful. Running. We've also been doing vaccine programs in Vanuatu and buying vaccine for them from my own funds. Uh, the vaccinating of boys... Well, boys get cancers caused by these viruses too. They get anal cancer, they get cancer in the mouth. And uh, while the burden of disease isn't nearly so great as cervical cancer on a global basis, nevertheless, these vaccines will hopefully prevent these cancers in the boys Mm. caused by the same papillomaviruses. Also, vaccinating boys gives a big advantage that it causes something called herd immunity. If If a sufficient number of boys and girls are vaccinated, then even the people who have not been vaccinated in that community are protected because the virus disappears and Mm. therefore there's no risk of catching it. We rely a lot on herd immunity when we vaccinate populations. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Question here about, uh, I guess it's a bit controversial, the anti-vaccines. I see a lot of people in my practice who have HPV-associated cancers and um, actually they're often people that choose uh, to do alternative medicine so I tend to see them at quite later stage four. A lot of misery, a lot of suffering, anti-vaccination groups who are questioning this vaccine what can you say to them? There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are championing the anti-vaccination stance with very little knowledge and they're influencing a lot of people. What can you say to these people? Well to the two percent of people that globally don't believe in vaccination as a matter of principle, that's a free choice for them. They obviously can choose to be vaccinated or not. Uh, To the 10% of people who are influenced by what they say, I would say don't listen to a story unless you can see the evidence. Vaccines are the single most effective public health measure we've ever had. The reason we don't have epidemics of disease caused by the viruses that used to cause epidemics is because we've got a well-vaccinated community. Vaccines are safe and they've been shown to work. And particularly 
it's not fair for somebody to take a decision about vaccination on behalf of someone else. I think mm. particularly of parents making decisions about their children. They may say, well, look, my children are never going to go to somewhere where poliovirus is still, available, uh, still circulating, or my children will never have sexual intercourse with somebody who's got these viruses, but they'll be wrong. Their children will travel when they grow up and they may well end up in a country where poliovirus is still prevalent. They may well end up with a sexual partner who already has these viruses. So it's not fair for them to make the decision on behalf of someone else. Mm, that's very well answered. So I do hope that those of you listening today who are sitting on the fence uh, about this subject, we'll take it seriously and uh, take Professor Fraser's advice. We are going to take another break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze and we will be back shortly. Don't go away. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Ian Fraser. Um, Ian, uh, do we know what the percentage of cancers caused by HPV worldwide is? Grace, the answer to that from the studies that have been done suggested about one in every 20 cancers worldwide is caused by HPV, 5%. In fact, one in every five cancers worldwide is caused by a virus infection, and a quarter of all of those virus-induced cancers are papillomavirus ones. Right, okay. Um, now, HPV has been shown to cause cancer of the penis, anus, esophagus, and more recently, cancer of the mouth, back of tongue and tonsils. And actually, I read a report about 12 days ago from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in the US and it said that more than 50% of cases of oral cancers now are caused by HPV-16 and that US medical experts are predicting the current trend of the diagnosis of oral cancer um, if it continues at the rate that it is will move cervical cancer out of the way and become a, a real problem. Can you comment on this and what, what's your experience of this? Well, first of all, we would agree with the figures from Dana-Farber. One of the research programs that I'm involved with here is actually looking at oral cancer and we find that at least in young people, the majority of the oral cancers we see now are due to papillomavirus infection. There's two causes for oral cancer. One is too much alcohol and too much smoking, and those cancers tend to occur in older men. The, the oral cancers in younger men and younger women are almost always papillomavirus-associated. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is increasing in frequency. Partly, I think, that increases more... We're recognising more commonly that there's the virus underlying the cancer, so it's not so much a real increase in disease, it's just a better diagnosis. But also there is a real increase in the disease as well in every study that's been done looking at that over time. Mm -hmm. So women have pap smears for their early diagnosis, but what about men then? Are there any detection tests in the pipeline? And uh, you know, similar, for instance, to find HPV in the throat before it was a problem. Is that realistic? We would really like to find an early test for the cancer in the mouth and throat because by the time it presents clinically it's quite difficult to treat. Mm. Uh, the problem is that there isn't a precancer lesion that corresponds to the precancer lesion in the cervix. Right. In the cervix you pick up the precancer lesion on the pap test and then you treat it before it becomes a cancer. In the mouth we are trying very hard to find a test that will enable us to find those people who are at particular risk of going on to getting papillomavirus-associated uh, oral cancers. But the problem is that there isn't a precancer lesion that's visible or that you can get access to. So we're trying other things, looking to see if the virus can be detected at the right stage and using mouthwash and that sort of approach to see if we can find early signs of the cancers. To date, we don't have a test. It may, it's much more difficult because we just don't have this natural history that we can watch 
and say, well, this is a precancer lesion, therefore we need to do something about it. We may have to rely on vaccination. Mm. Okay, so uh, we've talked about the cause and we've talked about prevention, but what does the future hold for treatments? And I know this is an area that you've been um, published on recently, and uh, we're looking here at also the herpes um, simplex. So could you enlarge upon that? Well, let's think about papillomavirus first of all. We would really like to have a way of getting rid of this virus for the very many women worldwide who already have it. I mean, we know that there will be about 5 million deaths from cervical cancer over the next 20 years from in women who already are infected with papillomavirus. And mm. Of course, the vaccines that we have at the moment, the, the Gardasil and Cervix, do not alter the natural history if you've already got the infection. In other words, they have to be given before you get the infection. So we need something we can do for the women who are already infected, mm. and the, particularly for the ones who are not going to clear the infection themselves. So that's what my research has been about. Actually, that's been my major research topic for the last 25 years, is trying to understand how we can clear away a virus infection that the body hasn't got rid of itself. A number of studies have been done, including studies by us. The reality is that up till date, we have not been able to get anything which reliably clears infection we can demonstrate that vaccines will help to clear infection in a small percentage of patients, but not enough that the vaccine could be used on a global basis with a reasonable prospect of success. The, the, the problem is that the people who can't clear the infection are people who appear to be genetically programmed not to be able to get rid of this infection. Right. And that means that we've got to ask them, their defences against infection, their immune system, to do something that it's programmed not to do. Skin's different from the rest of the body we don't really want to lose our skin in the course of an infection. So the body doesn't fight infections that occur on the surface of the body as hard as it does if the inspection, infection spreads through the body. And the net result of that is that there are more things trying to stop the immune system clearing away virus infections in the skin than there are helping it that's to do it. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's what we found from our study. So what we're now trying to do is to find ways of overcoming those blocks temporarily to allow the body to clear the infection. We can do this in animal models. It works. The problem we face is that the treatments we have to use are quite drastic ones in the mouse, and therefore we could only use them in people if the disease was a serious one. Right. And the, since we don't know who out of all the people who become infected with the virus are going to go on and get trouble and get a cancer, we don't know which ones of the infections are serious ones, serious enough to justify an intervention which might have some risk associated with it. So I think that... Un unfortunately, the reality is we're probably not going to come up with a simple means of eradicating existing papillomavirus infection. That doesn't mean it can't be done for other viruses, and as you've said, we're now looking at herpes viruses, particularly the genital herpes viruses. We recognise that people have been trying to get a vaccine to prevent herpes virus for over 60 years now and a lot of money, time and effort has gone into trying to get a herpes vaccine without as yet a successful one. So what we've been doing is trying to take a new approach to vaccine technology which might enable us to get rid of a virus which is really quite hard to prevent. So what we're thinking is we need a vaccine which will knock down the risk of infection, so a very conventional vaccine which makes antibodies and neutralises a large part of the virus. But for herpes, obviously, some of them can slip through that net, and therefore we need something which will actually also eliminate the virus if it gets in there. Mm -hmm. In other words, a therapeutic vaccine. 
And again, in the animal models, we've demonstrated that using technologies which enhance both antibody and cellular immune responses against a virus, we can get a vaccine that will do this in an animal model of herpes. So we've literally this week started a first clinical trial of a herpes virus vaccine. The first patient was immunized yesterday. At the moment, we're just testing the vaccine for its ability to make an immune response, and then we'll test its ability to protect against infection. If that works, we'll also test to see if it can be used to cure infection. Mm, that's fairly exciting. Um, I'm going to jump in my, uh, my question list here because uh, I just wonder if you could talk about the immune system and, and what it does when there is a virus present. You've talked about the, the skin being um, kind of a very different immunological response to, to in the body. What actually happens in the body when there's a virus? And how does the immune system respond? What's the mechanisms that, that come into play? Well, a virus gets in there. Viruses are bad news. They, by and large, kill cells. Uh, dead cells start off the inflammatory process which really gets the immune system going. Inflammation is a major driver of immune response and the inflammation turns on two different sorts of immune response. First of all it turns on a cellular immune response where cells are produced which will very specifically kill virus infected cells. They recognize that the cells got the virus inside it and they actually kill the virus. Uh, so that's that's the ideal way of getting rid of a virus infection. And if that's going to work, it works within two or three weeks of you getting the virus. The body then takes a secondary approach and says, OK, well, let's hope we've got rid of the virus by now. Let's make sure we're protected the next time around. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that the body does in response to a virus infection is it makes antibody. An antibody is a protein which circulates in the blood. It binds onto viruses and neutralizes them. It stops them being able to infect cells. So that the that has two advantages. One is if the virus is still there, it stops it spreading in the body. The second one is if the virus is gone but comes back another time, the body's ready. It's got antibodies, the antibodies neutralize the virus, mm -hmm. and therefore you don't get infected. And that, of course, is exactly what a vaccine does. It pretends that you've seen the infection. It tricks the body into making the antibody that will protect it the next time around. Mm. So that that is the critical part of how a vaccine works. It induces antibody, which is waiting for the virus when it really comes along. Now, the other part of the story, of course, is if the vaccine, if the, if the virus doesn't actually get cleared by that immune response initially, the body doesn't want to keep fighting if it's losing the battle, if you like. So then it just tries to contain the infection and keep it under control. And in the skin, that's quite commonly the case, particularly for papillomavirus, because papillomavirus doesn't actually kill the cells it infects. So there's no danger signal. Right. So no inflammation. That's why when you get a wart, it doesn't turn bright red and drop off. I see. <laughs> so that what you've got going on there is a virus which isn't being sneaky. Mm. And it waits, it still needs to get out of the body again. You know, the reason the virus kills cells is because the virus will pass on to other cells only when it bursts out of the cells where the virus is being made. One virus goes into a cell, thousands of viruses come out, but they have to get out in order to infect another cell. Mm. Papillomavirus doesn't kill the cell, so how does the virus get out? It gets out 
by waiting for the skin cells to fall off. And all those tales that your grandmother told you about you catch the virus around swimming pools are absolutely true. The cells that we shed off of our skin, are, if the virus is there, the virus is inside them, and then it can get into another person by being picked up from the environment. Wow, that's very interesting. Well, it's time for another break on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly uh, to finish off today with uh, Professor Ian Fraser. Hello, Grace Gawley here. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Ian Fraser. We've just been talking about the herpes virus, and I'd like to diverse a little bit now. Could you talk about shingles? Um, it's a virus that's also very sneaky, and it tends to hide away and then pop out at times of stress. What do we know about shingles, and um, what's being done about that? Shingles is the consequence of a chronic infection with the virus, which also causes chickenpox. It is a herpes virus, and uh, most of us get, or used to get, chickenpox before the, there was a vaccine to help prevent chickenpox. Uh, if you got infected with the chickenpox virus, then it gave you chickenpox. But it also hides away in the nerves in your spinal cord. And then often it just stays there. But if your defences against infection are damaged for any reason, if you take a drug which damages the defences against infection, or if you get an illness which damages your defence against infection, the chickenpox virus hiding away in the nerves in your back can creep out along your nerves and then cause a nasty rash, a new virus infection, if you like, in the skin. It does that along one nerve segment in your body, which is why shingles comes in stripes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the myth that if they meet round the middle that you're going to die is just a myth. Uh, but nevertheless, it occurs in stripes like that. And of course, if people, people whose immune system is damaged are much more prone to shingles. But in fact, as we grow older, we're all much more prone to shingles. Our immune system f wanes as we grow older, and people over the age of 60 are at significant risk of getting shingles without any other underlying reason. About one in four people will get shingles at some time, severe enough to be noticed mm -hmm. at some time in their life. Uh, fortunately, we can actually do something about that now. We actually have a vaccine which is designed to reduce your risk of getting shingles. It's given to people of an age where they might be likely to get shingles, people over the age of 60, uh, and it basically boosts your immunity to the, to the chickenpox virus. It's the same vaccine we use to prevent chickenpox, but you get a bigger dose of it. And it's not 100% effective, but what it is much very effective at doing is reducing the severity of shingles if you actually get it. So the studies have shown that the number of people who get shingles if they've had the vaccine is significantly less than the number who haven't had the vaccine. But also when they do get shingles, it's much less likely to go on to cause chronic pain afterwards, which is the real problem with shingles. The, the, mm. the, the rash at the time is an inconvenience, and if it gets you in the face, which it can do, it can, be, it can, risk, it can damage your eyesight. But it's the pain that occurs after the rash that's the real problem, and that's a problem for at least half of the patients who get the shingles rash. So that preventing the severe shingles prevents the pain, and that's why these vaccines are probably, should probably be used for all people over 60. Mm, that's a very useful knowledge. Um, we've talked about herpes, we've talked about HPV. What other um, viruses are, are down the pipeline for you and uh, catch your interest? Well, look, obviously all the viruses that are responsible for cancer we need vaccines for. We've got a vaccine against 
hepatitis B virus, which is responsible for a fair bit of liver cancer. We've got a vaccine against papillomavirus, which is responsible for cervical and some mouth cancers. What we now need is a vaccine against Epstein-Barr virus, the glandular fever virus, because it's responsible for a fair bit of tumours of the lymph gland, lymphomas, Mm -hmm. and... uh, they are a significant worldwide burden. We also need a vaccine against hepatitis C virus because it's responsible for a fair bit of liver cancer too. And then, of course, on a global basis, it would be really nice to have a vaccine against HIV AIDS, although that has been worked on now for nearly 30 years with only minimal success. And we could probably do with good vaccines against uh, the parasitic infections like malaria because uh, they also cause a great burden of disease and eventually you do become immune to them, so eventually your immune system can learn the trick. Mm. So if the immune system can do it eventually, we should be able to get a vaccine that does it without you having to get the infections in the first place. Mm. Is any of your work um, translating out into the community, into education of children? Because I, I think this is a really important area, particularly in the sex education area when we're talking about these viruses. Uh, we've talked about the genital herpes and the HPV. Is anyone putting together such a program? Look, I think it's fair to say that we all spend quite a lot of time on the public health aspects of the work that we do. Uh, It's interesting whether you should be targeting the children or whether you should be targeting the parents. Uh, the, Mm. The studies that we're doing in Vanuatu, where we're trying to get vaccination universally across all children against papillomavirus, show that the most important thing is to start with the village elders and the parents then you get the teachers, and if you can get all three of them on side, then the vaccine program will roll out successfully. Children get vaccinated, and they don't know what they've been vaccinated against. Most people, if you ask them, have no idea what vaccines they had as a children and what they protected them against. And that's one of the reasons why educating the parents is so important, because they get offered all these vaccines for their children, and they don't understand exactly why they're being vaccinated or what they're being protected against. So people have forgotten all these infectious diseases in the developed world. I mean, they know about flu, and they might recognise that that's caused by a virus, but they have no idea about how severe measles can be, they have no idea about how severe mumps can be, no idea about how severe the uh, virus infections like polio, which we've regarded as virtually eradicated, could be. And without that knowledge passed from mother to child and the next generation, there's no real incentive to make sure you get your kids vaccinated. The only time that people get really interested is when there's an epidemic of disease which they thought had gone, like we've recently had epidemics of both measles and whooping cough in Australia. Mm. So, elders there listening to the programme today, you've heard it on navigating the cancer maze. Um, be responsible and get involved, uh, get educated about this really important topic. Ian, I'd like to finish up by uh, getting you to tell us a little bit about this institute, this amazing institute we're sitting in today. Um, What's its real purpose? It's a translational research institute. It's an interesting name. Yeah, look, the Translational Research Institute brings together a number of research institutions from around Brisbane. They're focused on getting the science into the clinic so that we have here all of the ingredients that make that possible. We've got really good scientists, we've got really good core facilities for the basic research, we have a nice clinical research facility, we have a manufacturing plant next door that can make products of a quality that they can be used in clinical trials. It's run by a commercial company, DSM Biologics, but we can give them something and say, make enough of of this for us that we can do a clinical trial. 
and of course we're on a hospital campus so the, the doctors come in here and discuss with the scientists what are the problems they need solutions to. It focuses the work down on cancer, on diabetes, on wound repair, on arthritis, the four major areas that we're tackling. And the work is driven by that contact between the clinician and the basic scientists and the ability to get back into the hospital and try the treatments out. Mm. Were you a part of the brainchild of, of this? Look, this, it was my vision when I first came to Australia. Uh, it was my vision when I first came to Brisbane that we should build such an institution here. And we were very fortunate. The development of the papillomavirus vaccine encouraged our government to think very carefully about the need for such a facility so that the next time a papillomavirus vaccine was invented in Australia, it would be translated into clinical practice in Australia as well. And uh, they therefore put up the funding that's made this rather elegant building possible, but more importantly, the really good core facilities that it has, state-of-the-art, so that people can come from worldwide to do their work here in the Translational Research Institute. Fantastic. So I'm just going to mention your book again. It's titled Ian Fraser, The Man Who Saved a Million Lives, written by Madonna King, who's one of our radio presenters here on the ABC um, the book is published by Ian. Is uh, it Queensland uh, University Press? Queensland University Press. And how can people get hold of a copy of this? Well, look at, at the moment. You can get it in most of the bookshops around Australia. It's also on sale in Target, as it happens. Uh, worldwide, you can get it through the University of Queensland Press website, and mm-hmm. uh, I suspect eventually it'll be available in, uh, as an e-book as well. I was well. just going to ask you that very, very important question. Um, highly recommended reading. Um, if you want to enlarge upon the interview today that you've heard with uh, Professor Ian Fraser please do read the book thank you so much for your time today it has been really enlightening for myself and for people listening uh, to this program thank you Grace for the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners very important work, thanks Ian